Hello, friends. It's good to be with you this evening. A little while ago, I did a very quick read through the New Testament and make it, made note of every time the apostles reflect on Jesus' death. And I captured a document of every instance, and it's this right here. And I actually have several copies of it in case you'd like one. Last week, I read through it um, just kind of for my own reconsideration during Holy Week because I wanted to fill my mind with this body of the implications of Jesus' death. And I did, I brought several copies of it. They're down here on the front row. And if you'd like one, just to read through yourself, you can grab one when we come down to uh, nail our sins on the cross. You'll find them on that front pew if you'd like to grab one. Um, As you might imagine, Jesus' death undergirds everything throughout the New Testament. Luke, Paul, Peter, John, whoever wrote Hebrews, they just pepper their writings with allusions to Jesus' death. And in fact, once you get outside the Gospels and things begin in the book of Acts, um, we make it all of three verses before his death comes up. Luke wrote, writes this in Acts 1-3, after his suffering, he showed himself to these men and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. And that phrasing just captures me. After his suffering, how deep it was, how brutally agonizing it was. As I flipped through this this the other day, so many arrest me. It says in Acts 20 that we are to be shepherds of the church of God, which he bought with his own blood. 1 Corinthians 1, that Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with words of human wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the intelligence of the intelligent. I will frustrate. Uh, So many in here with, with hidden. Revelation, I'll just skip to the end. Revelation one. To him who loves us and freed us from our sins by his blood. So many things in here. If you want to grab one, feel free. There's one, though, in particular that I want to give a few minutes to tonight, and it's Galatians chapter 2, verse 20 and 21. If you have that, feel free to flip there. It's short, it's brief. Here's what it says. This is Paul writing, and he says, I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not set aside the grace of God for if righteousness could be gained through the law, Christ died for nothing. I'm on a very short leash tonight so this is gonna have to be tight but the crucifixion is very personal and it gives proof, proof perhaps of something you haven't considered in light of it and it's participatory. Take a look again at verse 20. Paul says, the life I live in the body I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Now there are scores of places in the New Testament that say things like God so loved the world or that God demonstrated his love for us and that while we were sinners, Christ died for us or that the son of man came to seek and to save the lost or that this is a trustworthy saying that we put our hope in the living God who is the savior of all men And as great as they are, they're all general, they're broad, they're not specific, they're not personal. But in Galatians 2.20, it's very particular. And essentially, what Paul is saying is that God loves you, but I'm his favorite, right? (laughs) 
Gate, can you say that? That God loves you. That he gave himself for you. The life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And I believe that when Jesus goes from being an example to being an experience, from being famous to being a friend, from loving the crowd to loving you, that's when everything changes. I have a friend named Robert who just read The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe for the very first time. It's a famous children's story by C.S. Lewis, and you should read it too. And the climactic moment in the story is when this wretched little kid named Edmund, who you just dislike so much, has betrayed his entire family for some food and power uh, to this evil witch, is rescued from that witch by a lion. The lion surrenders himself to be killed so that Edmund can go free. And uh, Robert doesn't like Edmund because the kid is just the worst. And you wouldn't like him either if you choose to read the book. But Edmund changes, and sometime later in a subsequent book, a sequel to The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe called The Voyage of the Dawn Treader, Edmund is talking to this other loathsome little kid named Eustace Scrub. And uh, Eustace Scrub uh, is learning for the first time about this lion. Here's the dialogue they have. Aslan, says Eustace, I've heard that name mentioned several times since we joined the Dawn Treader. And I felt, I don't know what, I, I just hated it. But then again, I was hating everything then. And by the way, I'd like to apologize. I'm afraid I've been pretty beastly. That's all right, said Edmund. Between ourselves, you haven't been as bad as I was on my first trip to Narnia. You were only an ass, but I was a traitor. Well, don't tell me about it then, said Eustace, but who is Aslan? Do you know him? Well, he knows me, said Edmund. He is the great lion, the son of the emperor across the sea, who saved Narnia and saved me. That's spot on. You guys, Jesus' work is not merely corporate. It's individual and it's personal. He saved me. He gave himself for me. Second thing this passage gives us is proof. Follow the reasoning. There's a tight little argument, but you might, it might not be you know, obvious at first glance. Verse 21, I do not set aside the grace of God for if righteousness could be gained through the law, Christ died for nothing. Okay? Now, to kind of gather the impact of what Paul is saying, come with me to the garden. I know that we are, which now Friday, is no longer Thursday. We go back a day. Go back to Thursday. Jesus is in the garden. He is in agony. He is sweating blood. He is dreading tomorrow, today's torture, because it is going to be so unspeakably awful. It's going to be bone on iron agony. It would be like someone pressing a high heel shoe into the crown of your foot until it presses through. It is like bearing all of your weight directly on your radius until you finally suffocate to death in exhaustion. And anticipating that, Jesus says, is there any other way? If this is the only way, okay, okay, I'll go through it. But is there an alternative? If so, could we do that instead? And what Jesus is asking when he seeks an alternative, is there any other way that this cup could pass from me? 
Can mankind be restored, be redeemed, be brought into a communion with God that does not entail this excruciating death? But there is no other way. And so to the cross he goes. I think the most compelling piece of evidence for the uniqueness of Christ, the exclusivity of the gospel, and the desperate need for everyone to hear and to believe is the crucifixion. What Paul is saying is that if people could be made righteous apart from Christ, if the cross wasn't absolutely necessary, if it was not the only way, the unique solution, then Jesus died for nothing. It was an absurdity. It was pointless. Whatever you're depending on that isn't the cross makes a mockery of the necessity of his suffering. The cross is personal. The cross is proof that he is the only way that we can be saved. And then finally, it's participatory. Look at what he says. Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. We all know, perhaps you know, that Good Friday today is about the crucifixion of Jesus. But I hope that you won't think me a heretic to say that it is also about the crucifixion of you. If you are in Christ, if you have been united to him, then his death is your death. Here's how Paul puts it in Romans 6. He says, or don't you know that all of us who are baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead for the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. And if we've been united with him like this in his death, we will certainly also be united with him in his resurrection. Good Friday is his, but it's also yours. Easter is his, but it's also yours. For we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin. Because his death is your death. You are crucified with him, united to him. And therefore, you are no longer slaves to sin. Dead people don't sin. And therefore, in Christ, you are free. You are free. You are free to live a new life. Now, you may go back and choose to sin. But you don't have to. You've been freed from it. You can live in the freedom that was purchased for you on the cross and reckon yourself dead to sin as you unite yourself to him. And that is huge news. Here it is all again together. Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not set aside the grace of God for if righteousness could be gained through the law, Christ died for nothing. The cross is personal, it's proof and it's participatory and it is also why we give him praise. Let's do that. Lord Jesus, today and all days, 
on the highest and holiest day of the year, on the day that we remember particularly that you chose to exalt yourself. You were lifted up before all men. You were seen in the fullness of your glory. You had blood dripping down your face. You were gasping for breath. You were drinking wrath and you were loving me. Lord, we adore you, we praise you, we lift you up. Amen.